But Jesus calls this child into the room, somebody who in the eyes of the Greco-Roman culture comes last. Jesus opens up his arms wide and he says, Um, If you have a Bible, go ahead and get that open to uh, Mark chapter 9. We're looking at one story this morning, verses 30 through 36. Man, our our church, we've been through a lot of seasons and we've had a lot of experiences where we've got uh, really, really empty rooms, right? We planted this church seven or eight years ago. We went through COVID together. And so anytime, like I'm, there's a Sunday where there's a lower attendance like today. By the way, thanks for showing up today. It's good to see you guys. Um, but anytime there's just a little bit of a smaller room, my expectation has kind of shifted from like, oh, there's not as many people here as usual. It's shifted from that expectation more to, I wonder what, I wonder what God is up to. Like there's just something different, not better, not worse, but I, I feel like there's always something different that God wants to accomplish on mornings when there's just fewer people in the room. And so I would just say, hey, let's play some heads up ball this morning. Um, it's, it's, uh, we got a lot of snow outside. We got, you know, 50, 60% of our church at home watching on the live stream. Hey guys, we're psyched that you're watching. If that's working, is it working? It's working. Okay, great. Thanks for joining in, guys. Um, but even though, you know, we've got a, a smaller morning, it's snowy outside, I'm still just going to preach my butt off, okay? I'm going to do that uh, for theological reasons, right? One of the reasons why we preach is to benefit the church of God. But another reason we preach is because it glorifies God. Um, and so I'm going to get up here. I'm going to throw fastballs still just because I don't want to be bored when I'm preaching and you don't want to be bored while you're listening. So I'm still going to go hundred miles an hour. And today's sermon is probably going to be one of those sermons of mine. That's a little bit nerdier and feels a little bit more like a lecture than a pregame speech. And the reason why is because this is one of those stories in the gospel that works at two different levels. Not, there's not two different meanings, right? There's one meaning, but it works at two different levels. It's one of those stories that you've read it, you've studied it, you've heard it in Sunday school, and it works at that top level where it's like, man, that's a great story. And wouldn't that be a nice way to live? There's, there's also this other level underneath it where where you get to that level, you begin to see just how radical Jesus was and is. And I don't like just preaching at that top level. I also like getting at that bottom level of the text. So we're going to get it at the bottom level of that text. And that means that we're going to have to put on our academic cap for a couple minutes during the sermon. But over the next 35 minutes, here's where we're going. This is your roadmap. In 35 minutes, we are going to talk about Greco-Roman history. We're going to talk about ancient pagan Baal worship. We're going to talk about the writing of Ernest Hemingway. And uh, by the end of the sermon, I hope that all of this, believe it or not, helps you become the greatest that you can be in God's way. So let me pray and we'll jump in. The greatest you can be, comma, in God's way. Heavenly Father, um, I, I've just been so convicted by this story this week, and so I pray that it would bleed out of your Bible this morning and that we would feel it, hear it, see it, experience it, encounter this story, maybe in a different way than we ever have before. And um, if we're going to experience your word that way, You must be present among us, walking 
in between the pews, whispering in our ears, convicting those who need to be convicted, encouraging those who need to be encouraged and pointing us back to you. So Lord, I just pray that you would do that for me and that you would do that for, for, for everybody. And uh, as a result of, gosh, all the plowing and snow blowing and shoveling. Oh gosh, all the shoveling. Pray that as a result of all of that, one person in this room might experience deeper joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that case, the sore shoulders and the sore forearms would be totally worth it. And I would be happy to shovel for another eight hours this next week. Please no, but if it needs to be so, then in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Um, I think one of the strangest things about making the transition from small town Iowa to the big city of Des Moines. One of the, one of the strangest things about that transition, it, it, it's been adjusting and making that adjustment uh, to the homeless population. When you grow up in a small town, like, like I did, right? In a town of 3,500 people, 4,000 people, there's not a large homeless population. In my hometown, there was really just kind of like one homeless guy. And uh, if there were more, I didn't really know about them or encounter them or experience them. And so he, he was the homeless guy, right? We, we had a name for him growing up as kids. We called him the can man. He, he had his cart that he pushed around town, his big bag. He collected cans, turned them into the deposit. And because there was this one homeless man, right? And, and it was the only one we knew, right? He, he had a name, the can man. And we, of course, as kids created a backstory and a mythology that wasn't true for him about why he was really poor and um, what, what was really underneath the cart and all the silly things that boys talk about when they can just make a person into a character like that. And that's what we did. He was kind of a, a, a nameless, faceless character that we imported a mythology to. And it's kind of weird because when you transition from small town to Des Moines, um, there's a much larger homeless population. And the opposite thing kind of happens where since there's so much homelessness and you're not really used to it, and it's on most busy corners when you pull up on the road, um, you, you just kind of blur people out, right? They just kind of become nameless, faceless nuisances that you have to drive through, drive past, and sometimes you feel kind of a, a pinch for it. And so that's been a weird transition is like learning well, oh my gosh, what's it look like to live in a city? And all of a sudden, homeless people no longer having names and faces. And so that's been a weird transition for me. But I did have this moment a while ago. I think it was about a year ago. I was walking to my coffee shop. And as I was walking to my coffee shop, I walked past a homeless person. And for the first time in a long time, and I don't think this was a mystical experience or anything like that. But for the first time in a long time, as I was walking past this homeless man, I stopped and did a double take. It's not one of those experiences where I think I was encountering an angel or anything like that. Although I wouldn't always write that off, right? But I stopped and I did a double take. 
And the reason why I stopped and did a double take was because of the face of the homeless man. It stopped me dead in my tracks because as I was walking by and saw his face, I swear to you, this homeless man eerily, strangely, and almost identically had the exact same face as me. And all of a sudden, it was as though I could see, I don't know, like the homeless version of myself. And all of a sudden, he wasn't a nameless and faceless person. All, the, all, all of a sudden, this empathy broke out inside of me, and I could see how I could be that same person in different circumstances. I could see how easily that could have been me. All, all of a sudden, I could see my face in the face of a homeless person. I could see our common and shared humanity. And this isn't primarily a text, and this isn't primarily a sermon about the homeless but it is a text about the least of these. And when you see your face in the face of the least of these, it stops you dead in your tracks and it rocks you. And it's what Jesus wants to do for his disciples in this text. And may God do it for us this morning. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. In this story, it's not a homeless person, but in this story, it's somebody in the category of uh, the least of these. Verse 30, they went on from there, and there, we'll get into where they're coming from because it plays an important part in the story. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he didn't want anybody to know because he was focused on teaching his disciples, saying to them, hey guys, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. I don't know if that's actually the tone he used. I imagine it that way. But... They didn't understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And so they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you guys talking about on the way? What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued, there's that word again, argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, guys, come here. And he said to them, look, if anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. Okay, what's that look like? Verse 36. And so he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to the disciples, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Isn't Jesus just so gosh darn nice? You guys can have a seat. Okay. So you've heard this story. Probably. The story begins. 
uh, with Jesus on the way. He's walking with the disciples and he's giving his disciples a prediction about his death and resurrection. By the way, this is the second of three total times in the book of Mark that Jesus gives his disciples a prediction of his death and resurrection. And on the way, he, he lays out his death and resurrection. And the way that he does that, the way that he explains the gospel to them is by all accounts crystal clear. Right? How, how clear is it? Look at verse 31. I don't know how you can get any more clear than this, bro. 31. He's teaching his disciples and he says to them, here's how it's going to go down. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. That's pretty clear, right? That's just basic gospel truth. How did... How do you not get that? How, how do you walk with Jesus for a couple years and not understand him when he says the most basic things about his impending death? How do you miss it? And I, I think further inspection into the text is actually quite revealing because it goes on to say that the disciples did not understand. That's verse 32. Just look at that real quickly. Look at that phrase, did not understand. Um... Like, in what way did they not understand? Was it like intellectually over their head? In what way did they not get it? And uh, some translators interpret the words did not understand, which I think is a great translation. But sometimes when you look at different translations, which are equally good, you can kind of round out the translation and see a different way to phrase it. And, and some, some translators interpret the words did not understand as they were ignorant of. And so I think that's helpful because I think that's a clue. So it, it, it might... It might be that the disciples couldn't understand Jesus despite their best intellectual efforts to grasp his prediction. That seems unlikely to me. It seems more likely that they didn't grasp Jesus's predictions because they were ignorant of what he was saying. Like they just had something more important on their minds, right? Something more worthy of thinking about. So they were just kind of ignorant of what he was saying because, bro, they've got something important to talk about, more important, which, of course, raises the question. Well, what could be so important that to us it makes the death of Jesus just a secondary consideration? What could be more important to us than the gospel of Jesus Christ? Verse 33. You ready for this? Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, okay, so what were you talking about on the way? But they kept silent. What were you guys talking about on the way? You know, when I was talking about my death and resurrection, they're quiet. They're like, looking at each other. They kept silent. Why? Because on the way, what they were preoccupied with, what they were arguing about, was who was the greatest. 
Oh. Okay. You see where I'm going with this? That, that, that's why they couldn't pick up what Jesus was laying down. They were too preoccupied with something more important to them, arguing about who was the greatest among them. And this is like the most awkward conversation ever. What were you guys talking about? Just like, right? Luke's like, don't say it. Don't say it, right? John's like, this is, that was such a stupid thing to argue about. I'm not even gonna put it in my gospel, <laughs> which he doesn't. They're quiet, they're silent. They know why. Jesus' piercing question reveals the folly of these conversations that preoccupy our minds. Take note of that. But Jesus being rich in mercy and grace, verse 35, doesn't stop there. Instead, he's like, all right, guys, like a good coach, he's like, okay, let's gather up, huddle up, let's work through this together. He sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, you want to be awesome in the kingdom of God? You want to be the bomb in the kingdom of God? If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So this is magnificent. Matthew, in his gospel, relays the same story, the same conversation, but with a twist on the language. And seeing the way that Matthew records this can, again, kind of help us round out exactly what Jesus is saying. Here's the way that Matthew records this conversation. But whoever would be great, that's the corollary with if anyone would be first, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Now I'm pushing into this. I want to see this because I have something for you at the bottom of this. Yes, Jesus is rebuking the disciples for their desire to be great in a worldly way. Don't take this text to mean, okay, so Christians should strive for mediocrity. That's the, that's the most Christian thing. If I were really spiritual, I wouldn't care about being great. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is rebuking the disciples for their desire to be great in a worldly way, but he's not rebuking them for their desire to be great. That desire is built into every human heart. My guess is that it's in your heart too, because I think that God put it there. Your desire for significance and greatness is a good desire. And I don't think it's actually the result of the fall or a result of sin, because Jesus, he actually affirms their desire to be great. He doesn't say, stop trying for excellence, right? He actually plays into it. He says, if you want to be great, if you want to be first, these are good desires. So so long as they're done in God's way and not the world's way. Here's, I want to keep pushing at this for just a second more. Here's the way that my good friend who doesn't know I exist, John Piper, Here's the way Piper articulates it. Quote, their desire, the disciples' desire to live a fulfilling life of excellence is at its root a good desire. But this desire has been corrupted and subverted by the world in two particular ways. First, it has been corrupted into a longing not to be great, 
but to be known as great. People-pleasing, right? The praise of man. And secondly, it has been corrupted into a longing not to be great, but to be greater than somebody else. Piper goes on to say, at no point does the way of Jesus so sharply diverge from the way of the world than on the question of greatness. See, Jesus does not repudiate greatness, but redefines greatness. He doesn't repudiate it. He redefines it. And so the challenge is to be great at the things that matter most to God. And of course, nothing is greater to God. And we see this in the text than serving, end quote. So in other words, what's Jesus doing in this story? He's redefining greatness and he's showing us how to be great in the kingdom of God, how to be great in God's way. And you do that by first becoming last and second by becoming the servant of all. Actually, those are the same thing. So those are two separate points. Those are one point. By becoming last and by becoming the servant of all. Of all, and what's that look like? And uh, as my professors at U and I would say, there are some lessons that are better caught than taught. So Jesus, being a good uh, teacher, he doesn't just tell; he also shows. So Jesus acts out the lesson, doesn't he? Okay, okay. So what's that look like? How do I, how do I do that? And so, verse thirty-six. There's this nameless, faceless character in some other room right? Because they're pushed out to the fringes of society that Jesus calls into the room. Verse 36. And he took a child. Come here. And put him in the midst of them. Look at this. And taking the child in his arms, he said, guys, look at me. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Isn't that so nice? Here we go, baby. Why did Jesus pick a child in order to act out this lesson? Yes, because in Greco-Roman culture, children were literally the least of these. That's absolutely 100% true. Yes, in church and public gatherings, children in the Greco-Roman world were always to come in last and they were to be ostracized and seated in the back. Yes, in the culture that Jesus is in, civilization saw them as a secondary figure and they did not build their institutions and culture around children. Those are all true points, many of which you've probably heard if you've heard this story taught before, all true. But if we stop there, we misinterpret Jesus as just saying something nice. And Jesus is, he is kind, incredibly kind, but he's not just nice. He's not just being nice right here. He's being savior right here. And so let's go deeper into this, okay? It's not just that the ancient world didn't care about kids. That's true. But it's actually far, far, far darker than that, which makes Jesus' teachings here shine even more brightly. So I'm gonna talk nerdy for a couple of minutes more just so you can see how much more Jesus' teaching shines bright and is radical in a dark Roman world, okay? So this conversation happened on the way from Caesarea Philippi where Jesus was transfigured on top of Mount Hermon through Galilee and Capernaum. So before this, before they were in this house, 
they were at Caesarea Philippi. And if you could see a picture of Caesarea Philippi, there would be a big, prominent rock mountain standing behind them called Mount Hermon. It was one of the most prominent geographical standout things about that location was this big mountain called Mount Hermon behind Caesarea Philippi. So they just saw this. I don't know how long this travel took. Maybe it was a couple days ago. Maybe it was a week ago. But here's why this is significant. It's significant because you want to know what Mount Hermon was known as in Jesus's day? It's called the gates of hell. And it was known as the gates of hell because that's where the pagan god Baal was worshipped. And do you want to know how they worshipped Baal? One of the ways that they worshipped Baal is the cult followers would take their children to that mountain and commit child sacrifices in order to please Baal. They just walked by this mountain. Right? This is what the world does. It creates a hierarchy of who's important and who's not on the basis of a ton of different reasons, and it discards the important people. And in Jesus' day, that meant literally killing children on that mountain at the gates of hell as an offering to Baal. But it, it, it wasn't just a religious practice in the Greco-Roman world. It was a legal right that Roman citizens had. So Greek philosopher Plutarch, he's a a historian, so you can actually go back and read his writings. He lived around the day and age of Jesus. Um, Not a Christian, so he's not giving you, you know, biased history or anything like that. But in Plutarch's writings, and this comes from around the year 100 AD, so about 70 years after Jesus said this. Um, Plutarch recounts how the ancient Spartans submitted newborn babies to a council of elders for what they called inspection. And take the babies, right? Hold them up and inspect them. Why? Plutarch goes on to say, quote, fit and strong babies survived, but those found to be lowborn or deformed were left outside to die on the grounds that it is neither better for themselves nor for the city to live their natural life poorly Equipped. All right, yeah. Eh, you want this one? That's horrifying. Right? Why do you find it horrifying, though? In their day, it was common sense. So to phrase the question differently, why do you find what they called common sense horrifying? To phrase it a different way, how did history change? How does something like infanticide change from a citizen's right to a legal prohibition? On what basis do you make the argument that every human being is of equal worth and value despite their differences in how much they contribute to society, despite their differing appearances, abilities, deformities, or otherwise? And you don't make the case on common sense because common sense in Rome affirmed infanticide. It was a legal right that Roman citizens had. So you don't overcome it with common sense. Of course, you don't make the case on a Darwinian worldview. Of course, nobody in Rome thought that way then, right? But you don't make that case because you can't make that case. 
So on what basis do you affirm that every individual life, whether they're in the middle of society or on the fringes of society, on what basis do you make the case that everybody has equal rights, equal worth, equal value? And here's the basis on which infanticide changed from a right that everybody could do if they wanted to, to a prohibition. Here's my deep argument for us this morning. Jesus. Jesus is the reason you hear about the practice of inspection and find it horrifying. Otherwise, it would have continued as common sense. The least of these are not to be thrown into the gates of hell or pushed into the fringes of society because they are, in Jesus' words, to be served and received on the basis that they bear the image of the Father. Jesus changed this. And you'd be like, okay, Cole, that's just preacher talk. Does that hold up to history? It does. Historically, Jesus changed this. Does this argument hold up historically? Well, when was infanticide outlawed in Rome? When was inspection outlawed in Rome? We can look back at history and find out the answer to that. It was outlawed by Emperor Constantine, whatever you think about him, around 313 AD, closely following his conversion to Christianity. So it was Jesus who recreated a world where everybody is loved. And it's Jesus who continues to recreate the world into a place where everybody is loved. And like, I know it's not comfortable on a Sunday morning to come to church and think about child sacrifice and the gates of hell. But I'm pressing into this because <laughs> the Bible's not comfortable. But I'm pressing into this to show you just how radical Jesus and his teachings are. This story is often interpreted as, isn't Jesus so nice? Which is like, holy understatement. Right? That, that's what one scholar called damning with faint praise. It's not that it's wrong, but the praise is so faint that it doesn't adequately capture at all what Jesus is doing. This is radical. That's To call Jesus nice because he takes this child into his arms is like saying that Ernest Hemingway was an adequate writer. Okay, so if you've never read Hemingway, Hemingway's style of writing changed the face of writing in the West and basically created a new genre so that without Hemingway, there would be no such thing as American literature and no classes called American Lit. And you know deep down that the world would be a worse place without your American Lit classes from high school, right? He created American Lit. You look back at Hemingway writings now, and you think, wow, this is so simple. And like so many American authors that followed Hemingway. And that's because Hemingway's style was a bombshell, right? It was a bombshell. It was so excruciatingly and painstakingly stripped down and simplified that nobody in Hemingway's time had really read anything like it. And so every American author since Hemingway has copied Hemingway to some degree. He totally changed the game. And this is what Jesus did for the least of these. Right? He's dropping a bombshell. We live in a culture that's much better about valuing children we still have a long ways to go. 
And so we look back at this and we're like, yeah, man, we should treat children well. But what we don't understand is that without Jesus, we wouldn't think like this at all. Jesus is dropping a bombshell so that virtually every civilization after him ends up copying him, copying his love for the least of these, copying the way he dignifies every individual life. Our culture still has a long ways to go. We still practice inspection, but we do that at a different point in their development, right? But don't miss what I'm saying here too. It was Jesus who pioneered human dignity for all, including those on the fringes. And then he acts it out, right? There's this little child present, probably in a, in a back room. Maybe the child's in the room. We don't know if it was a boy. We don't know if it was a girl. We don't know what color the child's eyes were. It's a nameless, faceless child to us, right? So picture this child however you want. But Jesus calls this child into the room. Somebody who in the eyes of the Greco-Roman culture comes last. They have to sit in the back of the temple. They have to sit in the back of the village gatherings. To the world, this child is a nobody. But who is he to God? Jesus opens up his arms wide and he says, come here. Come here. No line. No qualifications. Come here. This would have been earth shattering for the disciples. What the disciples are experiencing in this moment, honestly, it's the same thing that I experienced to a greater degree when I saw my face in the face of a homeless man on the sidewalk. See, this child, this child was nothing more than a nameless, faceless nuisance. And Jesus is challenging them to see themselves in the face of this child. And then Jesus takes it one step further. He wants them not only to see themselves in the face of this child, he wants them to see the face of God in the face of this child. Because what does he say? It's breathtaking to read. He says, quote, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not just me, but the Father. And so that, that should make us do a double take. Stop us dead in our tracks and rock us. And recognize that this is the pathway to becoming the greatest in God's way. To serve the least of these. To serve people who don't have dignity and value in the world. Because somehow, and I can't, this is theological math I can't quite do. But somehow, this is how Jesus receives you into his arms. And it's also how you end up receiving God into your own arms. And this text isn't, it's not just about serving kids. That's part of it, for sure. So sign up for Roots. Or you don't love Jesus. I'm kidding. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let me backpedal that. If you feel like you're, it would be something fun for you to do, sign up for Roots. Um, I mean, I've only done it once in the last eight years. So who am I to bully anybody, right? 
But this text isn't, it's not just about serving kids. The child in this story is an analogy. It's, the child's a really powerful analogy, but the child's an analogy because it's about serving who? It's about serving, in Jesus' words, becoming, quote, a servant of all. So if being great in God's way means being a servant of all, that means that the opportunities for what this looks like in your own life are limitless because it involves serving anybody and everybody. So I'm actually less interested in telling you exactly how to do this. So sorry for peer pressuring you into roots. My bad, that's not in my notes. But I'm more interested in giving you some examples of how the people around you are already doing this. Because if you look around this room right here, our church is like, we are 100% crowdfunded, baby. Like this church exists because these people love Jesus and are serving everybody. And so there's, we just got a ton of people who are already living this out. So what I'm going to do is something I don't usually do. I'm going to name some names and this is nowhere close to a complete list. So don't get bummed if I leave your name out, but here's some people in our church who are just the greatest in God's way. Okay. We've got a ton. Let me start. Liz Todd, Emily Meyer, Caitlin Sims, week in and week out, help lead our kids ministry in the basement. Nobody in our church is better at welcoming children like Jesus than these three. That is being the greatest God's way. Casey Canoe literally does this by taking a genuine interest in the things that my kids are interested in. A year or two ago at the height of Russell's Godzilla obsession, Casey showed up at the front step of my house with his old Godzilla toys and gave them to Russell. That's being the greatest in God's way. Dylan and Mariah Bradshaw, without being asked, called a friend to plow our parking lot this week and paid for it out of pocket. That's being the greatest in God's way. Van Gorp, Talon Meyer, DePau, Carl Maxwell carry hundreds and hundreds of pounds of administrative responsibilities every week for the church that most of you don't see. Whether that's the finance team or recording audio and video or leading the building team or organizing projects to help move them forward, they do a ton that you don't see, but you get to experience. That's being the greatest God's way. Alex Pasquer, every Sunday, Pasquer is here early, leading people in prayer so that when you stumble into the doorway haphazardly and look for a place to sit, you're actually entering into an environment saturated and infused by prayer, whether or not you know it. That's being the greatest God's way. Andrew Johnson is here almost every Sunday when the sun rises to do work alongside Joseph that you don't see at 7 a.m., but you experience it at 10 a.m. And that's not even beginning to count the hours he put into building out our trailer and loading it and unloading it every Sunday morning at 6 a.m. while most of the world was sleeping in back when we were a mobile church. That's being the greatest in God's way. Judy Maxwell is here in the middle of the week, making this place beautiful and clean so that you get to walk into a space that reminds you of the glory of God every Sunday. That's being the greatest in God's way. And there's countless people I didn't tell you about, unnamed people in this church who every Sunday show up and aren't primarily preoccupied with questions like, do I like this? And do I like that? And it's not wrong to have preferences. They just belong in a hierarchy, right? It belongs underneath some other stuff. But they don't walk in, a lot of our members, they don't walk in being like, do I like the way that song sounds? Do I like the way that liturgy leader read that line? They don't show up with those questions on their mind. They show up on Sundays preoccupied with questions like, who looks sad? Who needs me? 
Who needs encouragement? Who, who needs prayer? Who does Jesus want me to receive in the name of the Father? Because I, I just want to be honest with you. Again, preferences are great. I have way too many of them. They're fine. They're fine. Have preferences. It's great. But I'm just saying that when you approach church self-focused, you get the American landscape of church. Which is to say that when you approach church self-focused, church is boring. I'm just honest. Like when I have that mentality, I'm like, eh. You know, I'd give it a two out of five this morning. Blah. What a boring way to approach church. Yawn. But when you become God-focused and others-focused, church all of a sudden opens itself up to you and becomes exhilarating. At any, any need, at any moment from the least of these, from a person could arise and change the trajectory of your worship. You might catch the name and face of somebody in prayer and know deep down that God wants you to encourage them or know deep down that God wants you to pray for them. And if you're going to do that, that requires a substantial amount of courage. And what this makes is it makes church into a nonsense stop thrilling adventure where every Sunday is a possibility to become the greatest that you can be in God's way. And so let me just, let me make this hit. At the end of the day, if you're preoccupied with being the greatest in the world's way, you just won't understand the gospel. Is that not how the story starts? With Jesus clearly articulating the gospel. Hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised again. And they don't get it. They don't understand it. Because they can't understand it. Because you can't understand it when you're too focused arguing about who's the greatest among all of you. And if you're always focused on being the most popular, the most powerful, the smartest, the most sought after, the person who gets the applause of man, if you're always concerned about being the greatest in the world's way, how could you ever understand how the greatest man to ever live died by becoming the servant of all in the lowest possible way on the cross? How could you ever understand the gospel if you're concerned about being the greatest in the world's way? And this is about the gospel. It is. Again, Jesus is not just being nice when he receives the child into his arms. In his world, a child is something to be inspected. And if he is found inadequate, He's something that can just be casted into the gates of hell. So I I want you to see what Jesus is doing in this moment. He's not just being nice. He's being savior. He's snatching the least of these from the gates of hell. He's rescuing those from the margins and bringing them to the center. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Like what he did with you. That's when you get it, dude. That's when you really understand the text. 
A lot of times we read about the least of these and we think about the homeless and the disabled, the oppressed, those on the margins of society, and you should think about them. But you don't get it until you read about the least of these and you see yourself. You see yourself, right? In the hands of the world, you are nothing more than refuse to be thrown into the gates of hell. Nothing more to be inspected and evaluated and if found wanting, pushed to the margins of society. You are not strong and powerful and wise according to the ways of the world. You are weak in spirit and small in stature and spiritually malformed. And what did Jesus do? He welcomed you into his kingdom. He received you on the basis of his own grace. He snatched you from the gates of hell. And so if you feel unwanted by the world, inadequate, right? Not measuring up. If you're tired of the world holding you like this, then I just want you to know the gospel. That Jesus doesn't hold you like this, right? It's right here. And what he says to you this morning is, come here. And that's the gospel. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that, I mean, I, this, this, this text is both true at a literal level. We, we should treat children this way. We should treat the least of these this way. It's also a sparkling, dazzling biblical metaphor that ever since the first book of the Bible, God's chosen people have always been Children. He's called his people children because we have not been wise in the ways of the world and we have not been powerful in the ways of the world, but God always takes small people from the margins of society, people cast it out and welcomes them in his arms on the basis of grace. And so I pray that we would first receive that embrace from you and second, seek to become the servant of all. I personally know I've got a long ways to go um, in in that task. Something in me uh, feels as though that might be a lifelong project for me. And uh, so I pray that you would infuse me and empower me with that as you empower us as a church. So it's in Jesus' name that we pray.